Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I am fired up. No pun intended. <laughs> man, I'm excited about this show. It's uh, I can't believe this is real, but today is the 20-year anniversary of you leaving WCW, and I bet if you could press fast forward on your life uh, from September 9th, 1999 to today, you would not have predicted that you would in fact be in Stamford, Connecticut, working with WWE and Fox. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's very fair to say. In fact, if you would have told me a year ago that I'd be in Stamford, Connecticut, working with WWE and on this uh, SmackDown brand, I would have probably chuckled at you. But, you know, uh, the sports entertainment industry is an interesting uh, place to be. And as they say, never say never. So here we are. Well, I'm excited that we're going to finally tackle this topic. We have, uh, talked about this probably a hundred times on the show about, you know, the things that led to this and, you know, the big, the big, uh, break that's coming up here has been referenced throughout our show, but we're going to do a deep dive and talk about when it all came to a head. I got, you know, you, you sort of let me, um, put my hands on the steering wheel on this show. So. When it comes to topics and things like that, you just usually leave that to me. When I put this on the schedule, did you have any sort of mixed emotions about us doing a deep dive on this day in particular? Not really. You know, I, I've, I've never shied away from talking about, you know, you know, where my head was at and the situation, all the circumstances surrounding it. So, uh, no, not, not at all. Really. It, it doesn't bother me at all. Well, of course, the, uh, the word that we're going to hear as wrestling fans is that you were officially relieved of your duties on September 9th. And a lot of people as silly as this is think, oh, it's a work because there had been so many quote unquote worked shoots. And perhaps this was a new version of the Pillman angle where you're going to tell everyone that you've been reassigned or they're going to tell everyone that you've been reassigned, but in fact, you're still going to be there all along. And as crazy as that may sound on the surface, you did at least once kick around the idea of faking your own death. Uh, <laughs> so I guess we should just ask, did, uh, did any of your friends or colleagues approach you and, and want to know, Hey, is this a work? No. And first of all, I was officially let go on September 10th, 1999. And I think that's only significant as it relates to this story, because uh, I had on September 9th, it was a Thursday evening. uh, I was in the office very late uh, with Bill Bush and had, you know, really been venting, discussing, you know, trying to analyze different approaches to the problems we were facing. Uh, Bill had the title of a vice president of strategic planning or something of that nature. Basically, he was an accountant. Uh, But, you know, Bill was also a friend of mine, or I thought he was. And part in part of that discussion, I probably confided some things with Bill uh, in Bill that I, you know, in retrospect, I probably shouldn't have given the quality of his character and bill give me an example like you're just spilling your guts to your friend you're frustrated Uh, understandably wc was going through a tough time you've been riding high now all of a sudden you can't seem to pull the nose up on this thing and everywhere you turn there's more politics and more bullshit with the boys and we're going to get into all the problems that were sort of getting you to this point 
but as you're spilling your guts, what are some of the things you think you're saying that in hindsight, you're like, ah, oh, fuck, probably should have just kept that one to myself. Very specifically, uh, I remember confiding in bill that I was considering resigning and something that had come up about a year before. And I had talked myself out of it by this point, because there was not only no support in, in trying to solve our problems, but there were people within the company. I'm talking about Turner, AOL time Warner or time Warner, uh, that were literally, um, what seemed to me at least doing everything they possibly could to, uh, help drive us into the dirt. And it was that frustration, that, that tone of frustration and suggesting that I, that I might resign. And Bill specifically said, no, you don't want to do that. Don't do that. Don't even say that. And was really, it made me believe he was trying to, you know, talk me out of it, so to speak, because I was, I was pretty committed when I expressed that to him to actually resigning the following day. And I, you know, I, Bill actually said, you know what, get home, give Harvey Schiller a call, let him know where your head is at. And, and you know, talk to Harvey about some of this stuff. So I did, I actually, you know, I left bill that night, uh, drove home and immediately got on the phone with Harvey and expressed a lot of my frustrations and observations, the challenges that we were facing. And, and Harvey himself was very supportive on the phone call and understood and said, you know, effectively, don't worry about it, Eric, we'll get this worked out. You know, just, you know, keep your chin up, keep moving forward you know, we're behind you type of a conversation, not those words exactly, but that was the, the tone and tenor of it. Uh, it was the next morning, uh, when I was actually driving to work and my office uh, was off premises, we weren't no longer at the CNN center that I got a call from Harvey Schiller advising me to, uh, head on over to the CNN center as opposed to uh, my offices because we had to talk and I knew right then what was up. You knew right then the hammer was coming. Oh Yeah. Yeah, because it, you know it was very unusual for Harvey to to reach out and ask me to come into his office uh, for anything that wasn't scheduled. Now, clearly, I had a lot of meetings with Harvey throughout the week you know, on a general general basis, but those meetings were always scheduled, you know, days in advance and things like that. So for him to pick up the phone and out of the blue call me and say, "Hey, you need to come to my office," you, you pretty much it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that one out. What's going through your mind? As you find your, you hang the phone up, you're driving over to his office. Now, is this sort of like, um, trip down memory lane? Are you dreading the conversation? Are you getting fired up? Are you wanting to call Laurie and say, pack our shit? What's going through your mind? You know, I think more than anything, I was confused because of the phone call that I had had with Harvey the night before where, you know, and again, I don't want to overstate it or paint a picture that's not, you know, accurate. It wasn't like he was trying to life coach me up and, you know, give me the Tony Robbins speech and, you know, yay, rah, rah, come on, Eric, you can do this. It wasn't that. It was more mentoring for sure, but he was very supportive on that call. I mean, if there would had been, and this is the point, you know, that I bring up and why I want to make the distinction between the ninth and the 10th is because as late as probably nine 30 is when I was talking to Harvey at night. Um, he was very supportive. And if there would have been, you know, Harvey Schiller was a very straight shooting type of guy. Um, if, if there would have been any thought in his mind as to me, uh, of, of Turner broadcasting, making a change and letting me go, he certainly would have taken that opportunity to say something to the effect of God, Eric, you're right on the right track. Keep thinking along those lines. Maybe you should resign. 
but he didn't. He was, it was the exact opposite of that. So something happened between my phone call with Harvey around 9.30 Thursday night and 10 o'clock Friday morning. What, I'll never know. Don't really care at this point in my life. But like I said, my last, phone, my last conversation with Harvey Thursday evening on the 9th, he was very supportive, uh, talking me off the ledge, so to speak, when, when I mentioned to him that I was thinking about resigning. And, uh, you know, he was green light go uh, when I hung up the phone with him on Thursday night. So something happened between that call and Friday morning at 10 o'clock. Is it fair to say that the nature of the company had changed because of this, you know, impending merger that maybe the old cowboy way of doing things wasn't going to get it anymore. And it was going to be much more safe and much more corporate. And, um, I don't know. Did it, did it start to feel like a different company at this point? Uh, well, it did, but not in the not in the way that you just uh, described. I mean, it wasn't a a more corporate, more button down, button down uh, type of environment. It was chaotic. You know, keep in mind that you know. Again, I've only been through one of these mergers, especially at this level. Um, there, there was a, it was a free for all. You know, there were there were people at the very top of the company jockeying to be president of Turner Broadcasting, Harvey Schiller being one of them. And there were others, you know, there was, there was some infighting between Steve Heyer and Harvey Schiller. And there were a lot of people that were jockeying for position. There were a lot of people that were um, doing everything that they could within the divisions or the departments that they oversaw to make sure that their bottom line looked as good as it could possibly could. Um, prior to the the merger uh, becoming official because stock options became a very, very uh, lucrative source of income for a lot of those top executives who had been there for a long time. So the, it was more or less of a free-for-all. I wouldn't say it was more buttoned down at all. Now, you could expect that were to, that was going to happen post-acquisition you know, or post-merger, however you want to refer to it. But going into it at this particular time, it was more of a free-for-all at the corporate level than it ever had been under Ted's leadership, you know, and again, I've, I've said this before, I'm not going to go into the long story version of it, but you know, that Christmas Eve party or Christmas party that I went to at Terry McGurk's house, uh, where all of the top executives way above my, my pay grade were there. I think I was the token WCW guy. Um, they felt sorry for us. So they invited my wife and I, uh, we went there and I remember, you know, Gerald Levin and, and Ted Turner, you know, standing side by side and Gerald Levin saying how, you know, the, the corporate strength and the deep roots in the entertainment industry of, of, uh, of time Warner is going to merge with the entrepreneurial, you know, DNA of the Turner broadcasting environment. And I got all excited about that. And it was the exact opposite. It was exactly the opposite there, you know, the, the entrepreneurial nature of, and you could, you could refer to it as wild, wild west if you want, but you know, Turner broadcasting had grown into a media powerhouse under the leadership of of Ted Turner and his vision. And while it might've appeared to be, um, a, a wild, wild west type of approach because Ted did so many larger than life things in, in the entertainment media business, uh, that no one would ever expect in a corporate environment. He was, he was very successful in doing so. And that leadership kind of 
it was a trickle down theory. You know, there were the people that were underneath Ted were entrepreneurs and they, they were risk takers and they, they built great things as a result. But as a result of the merger, particularly going into the merger, uh, it was anything but an entrepreneurial environment. In fact, I would say for the most part, most of the division heads at my level and above kind of abandoned trying to think outside of the box and and build the company and were more focused on how to survive the merger and how to adjust their bottom lines post-merger uh, or pre-merger so that post-merger they could line their pockets as much as they could. Now, of course, we're going to talk a lot about the end and how we're losing money and and, and what that looks like. But we should also mention that you had some incredible heights, really, really big revenues, and those didn't exist before you were there. In fact, before you were in WCW, uh, what was the most profit they made? I believe at one point, uh, it must've been probably 98, 97 or 98. I believe our revenues were in excess of 300 million. And our profit on that was about 50 to 60 million, depending on whose books you believe. We've touched on this before. There were a lot of intercompany expenses and allocations that were typically moved around uh, to to make different departments look good. Uh, so and this is all, again, generally accepted accounting principles uh so it's not there was nothing wrong with the way they were doing it wasn't nefarious and cooking the books by any stretch but it was creative and i'd seen it before and i think a lot of other people saw it as well but to the best of my knowledge we're at one point at our high point we were in excess of 300 million generating about 55 or 60 million in profit well okay that's the high point but where was the profit when you took over when I took over the company, there was no profit. When I took over the company, the year I took over the company, they had $26 million in total sales and a 8 or $9 million loss on that revenue. Yeah, the uh, the internet, the, the quote-unquote dirt sheets, would say that you took the company from a $30 million a year company that was in the red uh, to the tune of $6 million or more annually to 1998 grossing more than 200 million and more than a $55 million profit. So I think sometimes people want to look back at, you know, the end of your WCW run and sort of do the old Simpsons. Ha ha. But the reality is it's like, let's not forget who this motherfucker is, which is why we named this show 83 weeks. Um, of course the, uh, the newsletters are having a field day, you know, they, they've never been a friend of yours. So when the news comes that, that you're on your way out, uh, they can't help, but run down some of the things that, that led to this. And that's what we'll talk about. I'm sure here today, but they're really piling on some ideas that, that they think were, were sort of silly. And, and we've talked about and defended and explained here before, including the new year's evil pay-per-view where it's a half WCW show, half kiss concert. And of course the kiss demon and. The million dollar giveaway is something you and I haven't spent much time talking about, but Tony Schiavone has told us on his podcast that the first time he plugged it, uh, you were not happy and you felt like, um, he was doing a half-assed attempt and he wasn't really excited about it. And I think, uh, off air, you said something like that's why I won't get over because you don't fucking, you know, care about it or whatever the point was, but you were really 
obviously at the height of your frustration there and trying to come up with something to get some traction and some attention. So Tony tells the story that he intentionally goes out and no sells absolutely everything on the show and just drives and hammers this million dollar giveaway. And afterwards you loved it. Uh, but we've, you and I've never really talked about the million dollar giveaway. What can you tell us about the concept and, and what the hope was with that idea? Well, the hope for the idea was simply to increase ratings and generate some buzz and get some excitement around our brand, um, WCW Nitro. In terms of how we set it up, you know, I don't remember exactly what the details were of how it paid out. I do know that we had to spend a lot of time making sure that we didn't um, violate any lottery laws because every state in the United States, uh, much like liquor laws, each state within the United States has its own version of what's a lottery and what's not a lottery, what's legal and what's not legal. And we hired an outside firm that specializes in these types of sweepstake giveaway type programs that other people have used in media and uh, various different ways in marketing and merchandising. We had to hire this outside firm from New York who was fluent in all of that um, architecture because we certainly weren't. Um, and the, the million dollars didn't cost us a million dollars. It was probably, uh, probably cost us somewhere in the neighborhood of $350,000 in order to give away a million because we weren't really giving away a million in cash. Nobody was going to get a check for a million dollars. It would have been a sum of money paid out over five or 10 years, much like these types of giveaways or million dollar prizes are, are, are structured, whether it's Reader's Digest or anybody else that does them. So it was a promotion that was probably going to cost us about $350,000 of, of our cash, our real expense. It would have paid out over time a million dollars to a winner, and it was being structured, like I said, by a, a third party uh, in New York. Let's, uh, let's also talk about the movie because your departure comes – Right around the same time that ready to rumble is in production, supposedly you were supposed to be the main character, which, uh, we know would be taken over by the, I guess, probably one of the more famous roles was in the Sopranos where he was Joey pants, uh, or that wasn't his character name, but that's certainly his nickname. I think his, um, uh, Pantaleona. Yeah. Joey Pantaleona. Yeah. There you go. So you're supposed to be in the movie, right? That's supposed to be your character. Uh, what can you tell us about ready to rumble and what your involvement was supposed to be? Well, we were approached by Warner brothers, a guy by the name of, uh, Lorenzo de Bonaventura, uh, who, you know, at the time was a young guy. He was about my age, maybe a little younger than me at the time. Uh, he <clears throat> was, if he wasn't the head of Warner Pictures at that time, he was going to be very, very soon and went on after this movie, actually, uh, despite, you know, the box office for this project went on to become head of worldwide pictures at Warner Studios. So Lorenzo had and still has. He's probably one of the most prolific uh, producers in Hollywood right now or in the world right now, for that matter. He was very involved in the Matrix <clears throat> movies, bringing the, that franchise to life. Uh, he was uh, – he acquired the rights to the Harry Potter books, uh, which led to the movies that we're all familiar with. So very, very successful guy. And, and Lorenzo came to me and said, hey, we, you know, Warner Brothers would like to do this project. We'd like to use a lot of your wrestlers. We think wrestling is really, you know, a, a, a phenomenon. And obviously, you know, it was, you know, there was we had done a lot of great things. You know, they came to me, I think, about 1990. Well, it was early 98 is when they first came to me, and that's when the project initiated. 
and had several meetings and brought in a director by the name of uh, um, what was his name? Brian Robbins. Yeah, Brian Robbins, who was another extremely successful producer in Hollywood. I think he went on to become head of Nickelodeon TV or something like that. But um, my first meeting was with Lorenzo de Bonaventura, and then after that I met with Brian, Brian Robbins, and they got to work and put together a script. Uh, and while I was, you know, they, they wanted me to play myself in the movie, which is, you know, if you, they wanted a lot of, uh, of the talent in WCW to play roles within the movie, that was their idea, not my idea. I wasn't going to Warner brothers and asking them to make a movie about wrestling. And by the way, put all my friends in, right. which is probably the way <laughs> it was reported. They literally came to us with an idea and they wanted as many characters in the movie as they could cast that were actually a part of the WCW roster. So I, I was initially uh, going to play myself in that role. I think the role was probably uh, the role that Joey Pantaleonis played was probably an expanded role given you know the nature of his screen credits and so forth and his abilities. My role would probably have been reduced quite a bit, but that was the original plan just fascinating to me that all of this is sort of happening around the same time. And, um, we should mention that the decision to do no more road wild or Sturgis shows was actually made in July in advance of you leaving. Uh, but there's another project that maybe had some of your fingerprints on it. That's going to get canceled. And that's a nitro weekly cartoon segment that was supposed to be produced by your old pal, Jason Hervey and Mandalay sports action entertainment that was supposed to start. Uh, I think September 13th, that was canceled. What do you remember about, uh, that concept and what that was supposed to look like? That was really fun. And that was very unfortunate that that project never saw the light of day. And it wasn't supposed to be produced by Jason Hervey and Mandalay. That was misreported. Uh, the producer of that was a young man who not too many people had heard of at that time who went on to become one of the most successful directors in a horror movie genre, a young man by the name of Eli Roth. Wow. Eli Roth was from Boston. He grew up there. He was a big wrestling fan and he loved animation. He he had been dabbling in it for some time. He'd been doing some, some things, early things on the web and things like that. And he had this idea for a, and again, keep in mind, this is in the era of, that whole, you know, animated comedy adult thing was was really getting off the ground at that time. And Eli came to me with an idea uh, for a series called Chowda Heads, C-H-O-W-D-A, Chowda. I guess like you would say chowder if you were from Boston. But uh, the characters were very, very cool. They were, you know, a, a group of young guys, animated characters, all from the the Boston Boston area, who were very. Um, they were, you would know they were from Boston the first time you heard them speak. They were heavily accented. You know, everything was oh, that's wicked piss up, brother, wicked piss up. Which I guess wicked pissa is a or wicked pisser is a uh, a term that's kind of indigenous to the. Boston area. <laughs> See, you're laughing already. You would have loved this thing, but it really was funny. It was very smart. It was it was funny as hell. It fit 
you know, the, the, the property, it was targeted towards our audience. So we wouldn't have been going over their heads or, or shooting too low to the ground. It was, it was really a great project and I'm sorry that it never saw the light of day. Eli Roth, however, went on to have a, a very successful career and is still enjoying it to this day. Yeah. I think that, uh, that hostile movie worked out for him. Yeah. They had a couple others. Sure. Well, listen, let's talk about, um, the way the narrative would begin to be spun. Wade Keller would write some people in WCW didn't think he'd ever lose his job while others are shocked. It took this long. Eric Bischoff, the young, energetic, brash, daring, motivated executive who made WCW number one after years of follies is no longer involved in WCW Friday morning, September 10th at WCW's headquarters in suburban Atlanta, Bischoff's boss, Harvey Schiller announced to WCW's division heads that Bischoff had been removed as president of WCW. Sources close to Bischoff say he'd been concerned about his job security for the last several months, especially the last several weeks. WCW's ratings, buy rates, attendance figures, etc., were all sagging. So I don't know why, but I, that that sentence has always stood out to me. Eric Bischoff, the young, energetic, brash, daring, motivated executive who made WCW number one after years of follies. That to me, the way they're describing it, it, it's almost like the way you hear presidents described like, Hey, here he is. The day was sworn into the office. Now here he is four years later. Look at how we aged this motherfucker. Is that, <laughs> is that sort of, you know, when you look at, when you sort of took over WCW to 1999, is that, that sort of makes sense for you too, that so much had changed that you really weren't the same person anymore. Well, I wasn't, and it wasn't the same company anymore. Right. You know, I, I mean, a lot of things changed and I changed along with it, you know, in when I took over the company, it was, and look, it was a mess when I took it over. It was as dysfunctional as dysfunctional could be. It had never been functional. Everybody that was in my chair before me was, I mean, steered WCW into the dirt. Now the, the advantage I had when I took over the company is I had nothing to lose. I had nowhere to go but up. And that's we've talked about that before, I think. That's a it's a real big advantage. You know, when you come in and some when when something so, you know, profoundly fucked up as WCW had been on everybody else's watch prior to me, um, you know, you got nothing to lose. You've got nowhere to go but up. It can't get any worse. And I, you know, I kind of like that environment. I, I, I liked, you know, having the gun to my head, so to speak, and, and the pressure of trying to turn this thing around. And I was passionate about turning it around. And I did believe I could do it. And I did have a lot of energy. I still had a lot of energy in 1999 and 2000 and 2005 too. But the company had changed. The, the environment was completely different. The goals were completely different. And there was no room for a young, energetic, brash, entrepreneurial type person. That that, that guy that came in in 1994 to take over WCW or whatever it was, 1993, uh, that guy would have never fit in WCW in 1999 because the company, the company didn't want that. The company, look, the company didn't want WCW at the end of the day. And I know, you know, people that listen to this and oh, Bischoff, you're just blaming everybody else. You're pointing fingers, at everybody else. But if anybody looks at what really happened objectively within Turner Broadcasting, not within WCW, within Turner Broadcasting, the handwriting was on the wall. And now 20 years later, it's, you know, I, I don't know how anybody could dispute it. They didn't want WCW on the books. It's that simple. 
they they were like vaults. When I say they, I'm talking about you know, corporate executives at the top of Turner Broadcasting at that time. They were picking WCW apart like vultures from an, from from a fiscal point of view because they didn't want to put any resources into it. They actually had gutted the budget that had been previously approved the year before or eight months before. They had gutted that budget while dumping – you know, all of the expenses of, of Thunder on TBS on top of us that we had to find a way to pay for it while they were gutting a budget that had been previously approved. I mean, it was those types of things that led me to that conversation that I alluded to with Bill Bush on Thursday, September 9th. It's like, how the hell do you want me to build this thing when you keep reinventing new ways of gutting it and 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 kicking the wheels, uh, you know, taking kicking the legs out from underneath it? It's just you take one step forward and two steps backwards not because we couldn't we weren't capable of finding ways to do it now, you know you, you some of the projects you know the movie that really wasn't a wcw project by the way wcw happened to be involved in it but that right. was a warner brothers film that wasn't an eric bischoff wcw project despite what the dirt sheets like to to write about it um but, you know, the New Year's Evil pay-per-view that you suggested, that was a way right there to generate probably three to five million dollars in revenue. And the only reason we didn't do it, not because it wasn't a good idea, not because we didn't have a business plan in place, not because it wouldn't have been successful. We didn't do it because Turner employees complained about having to work over the Christmas holidays. It's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, are you kidding me? You know, here we are. We've got, you know, all this pressure on us to try to generate revenue and find revenue. We've got a massive idea with an iconic rock and roll figure for a very cool pay-per-view that's happening on New Year's Eve 1999, which, you know, there was a lot of focus on that particular, you know, the Y2J thing and all that or Y2K, whatever the fuck it is. The there was a ton of focus on that. People were worried that the power grid was going to shut down. Their computers were going to crash. Planes were going to fall out of the sky. The world was going to come to an end because we were going from December 31st, 1999 to January 1st, 2000. What a great time to put on a pay-per-view called New Year's Evil with Gene Simmons and Kiss. We had the thing laid out. And like I said, the only reason it didn't happen is literally because human resources got enough complaints from employees about having to work over the Christmas holidays that it got shuttled. I, even as I say this, I, I have a hard time believing it was true. Wade Keller would write Bischoff, who couldn't seem to do anything right in recent months, was once known for having a Midas touch. He was hired by WCW 92, as he described it, 94 torch talk as a C level announcing position. He watched closely the mistakes that WCW executives were making, took mental notes and came up with some aggressive solutions. He was eventually named executive producer and then executive vice president and finally promoted to president during Nitro's run atop cable television's weekly ratings charts. Bischoff was a man of many personalities. At times he could be charming, self-deprecating and refreshingly honest. Others saw a different Bischoff, an impatient, arrogant, condescending, demeaning prick. He won over reporters with his straight talk approach. He'd use that same approach to charm the corporate executives into giving him a job in the first place. I've always been fascinated by this because I have, uh, I've always heard about sort of the two sides of Eric Bischoff and there is definitely the salesman side of you and the guy you would go have a beard, a beer with, but then I think there's also 
you know, you have to wear a different hat if you're going to be a leader and you have to put on the boss hat. And sometimes when you did that and maybe the pressure was there, a lot of people would say that that was the not so nice Eric Bischoff, the impatient, arrogant, condescending, demeaning prick as Wade says, how, when you, when you hear other people sort of lay out all the good stuff about you and your character, and then maybe some character flaws right after what's that feel like? Oh, what does it feel like? I guess I've heard, I've been hearing it for, you know, two decades now. So I, I kind of, don't, I don't even really pay attention to it anymore, but you know, I think early on when I would hear that type of thing, I, first of all, I, you know, I would kind of reflect a little bit and go, wow, am I really coming off like that? And I right. think, some of it, some of it was overblown. Some of it was deserved. Uh, and look, when you, when you're in the position I was in and you came up the way I came up <clears throat> as a C squad announcer talent, as somebody who was, I was never one of the, I hate to use the terminology, one of the boys, but I was never talent at a very high level. So I didn't ride with anybody. I didn't socialize, you know, before I took over the company. Um, I just, I came in, I did my thing. I was in the locker room with everybody. I was sociable with everybody and, you know, friendly with everybody, although I wasn't necessarily friends with a small handful of people. Um, but then, you know, I took over the company slowly. It didn't happen overnight. You know, it was executive producer, vice president, senior vice president, whatever, whatever the, the, the evolution of my titles was at that time. So not, it's not like I walked, I, I walked in one day as an announcer and I came out the next day as a president of the company, right. you know, a, a period of time had gone by, but what didn't change is my relationship with the people around me. And it did oftentimes it was a friendly relationship in a, in a social relationship and uh, not much had changed with me in terms of the way I treated people or approached people. It's not like one day I was there as a C-Squad announcer and having fun with everybody and being one of the talent group, uh, so to speak, and then come in the next day wearing a three-piece suit and a pair of wingtip shoes and was acting like the boss. Uh, the, the transition was softer than that. Uh, but there were times when I did go from being, you know, a pretty laid back, easy to be around with type of personality to the guy who had deliverables <laughs> that, that, that had to be met or, or a, a task or strategy that, you know, I didn't have a lot of patience, you know, with people around me who weren't really as motivated as I was. So I, you know, when I hear that type of thing, I, it doesn't bother me. Um, I understand it. And like I said, some of it was probably true. You know, I hit the ground, you know, at a hundred miles an hour and didn't slow down for four years. I'm sure I offended some people with the way I communicated. Uh, I'm not proud of it. I'd like to, I'd like to have a redo if possible, you know, 20 years later with a little more maturity under my belt and and experience. But, you know, I, 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 like I said, I hit the ground running at a hundred miles an hour and didn't stop for almost four years, five years. And I'm sure I, I'm sure I stepped on some toes along the way. So when I hear those things that I don't, I don't discount them. I don't say, well, that's not true. I certainly, it was true. I'm sure in some cases it was true, but at the same time, um, I'm sure some of it was overblown by, you know, some of the same parasites that like to feed stuff into the dirt sheets, uh, for whatever reason, whatever motivation they have and probably still to this day have, um, 
so I don't really react to it too much. It doesn't really make me feel anything other than a little bit retrospective and, and aware. It's just fascinating to me because no one in history has ever been in the spot you were in right here. You know, I mean, I know lots of people are going to hear that and say, oh, there's been other people who ran successful wrestling companies. That's not what this is. Eric was running uh, wrestling inside of a television company and in, inside that uh, sort of ecosystem, no one had ever been successful before or after there's been one person who was ever successful in that spot and it was you. And then I know that comes with a certain amount of, of, of expectations and pressures and stresses, and you are uniquely qualified in that you are the only person who can speak to those, no one else. And one of the things that changed, especially here in 1999, and I, I want to get your take on this is, and you mentioned earlier, we were no longer, you know, in the tower at CNN. Now you've got this single story building over in Smyrna. Do you think that the sort of separation of church and state here had any sort of impact on your end here in WCW? Uh, you know what? Ultimately, I've thought about that over the years and to try to learn from it, you know, to, because I think that move was the precursor of all the shit that was going to hit the fan really that when, and, and now let's talk about why that move came about in, I can't remember the year, whatever year it was, we moved over to the offices in Smyrna. The reason we were moving is because Harvey Schiller was taking over the Atlanta Thrashers, the NHL hockey team, which was a new franchise in, in Atlanta. And, and Harvey Schiller, you know, he was a sports guy. You know, that was his claim to fame. That's why he was president of Turner Sports. And this was a really big opportunity for Harvey. That's where all of his focus was. And in order to have the offices for the NHL, you know, near him, WCW had to leave. We had to move out. And I think that was indicative, really, of where we fell on the food chain. And, and, and when I say that, it's not like, you know, woe is me. They're kicking us out of the, the offices. But, you know, there's a there's a lot to be said for energy and focus and, and priorities. And the minute they moved us all out of the CNN Center, we became stepchildren. We, we, we were redheaded stepchildren, you know, long before that day. But on that day, we really became a distant thought within WCW, or excuse me, within Turner Broadcasting. We became more of an albatross than a focus at the very highest levels. And I, like I said, I think it was a harbinger of things to come. One of the things that uh, makes its way into the torch is uh, a report that I know you're going to take issue with, but I can't help but run through it. WCW in the last two months alone has lost over $8 million. Bischoff knew he had to turn the tide, and it was his attempt to find a short-term fix that may have ultimately cost him his job. Known for his attraction to mainstream celebrities, both for business and personal reasons, Bischoff signed deals with Megadeth, Chad Brock, Kiss, the Insane Clown Posse, and Dennis Rodman in recent months, and every one of the crossover tie-ins failed to attract a new lot of WCW fans. Meanwhile, the WWF continued to expand Raw's lead over Nitro on Monday nights. Now, obviously you're going to take issue with the $8 million, but I don't think it's unrealistic or unfair to say that you were probably hitting the panic button, just trying to grab at straws and create something. Bruce Pritchard has talked about when 
the WWF was in a slump in the mid nineties that Lisa Wolf would say Vince just needs a hit. And so he would try all of these weird little things, whether it was Lawrence Taylor main eventing or WrestleMania or whatever it might be. We're going to give away a house or we're going to try a monthly pay-per-view at a reduced cost. That's a little shorter, anything he could to come up with a hit. And, and, and Bruce has really pushed that Vince just felt like he had sort of lost it, his ability to make stars and to crank out hits and to create, and he needed one thing to hit. And then he would sort of be back on his way. Is that the way you sort of feel here in the second half of 99? Like, God damn it. We've just got to have something, one thing catch on and, and we'll be, we'll be back in this game. I don't think so. I, I, I wasn't ever focused on the one hit kind of strategy. Uh, it's just not the way my mind worked, and I'm not saying that that was a bad strategy, and perhaps I should have been more focused on really zeroing in on that one thing as opposed to uh, my approach was really to kind of spread it across a little bit and see what did hit. I, I do want to go back. You know, Chad Brock's name was thrown in there as part of the you know celebrity uh, uh, attraction that I had. Chad Brock was a very little-known country music artist that – had a real affinity for professional wrestling and his music label came to me again. It was a Warner brothers music label came to me and said, Hey, you know, and this, this was at a time. And again, for the listeners to understand, I I don't want to gloss over this because it really puts what was going on in context. One of the things that was preached to us during this period of time was the need for synergy. Now I knew what the term meant um, yeah, clearly, but it was pounded into our heads on a daily basis by all of our superiors, everybody above us. It was like corporate synergy, corporate synergy, reach out, you know, try to, try to, you know, bring other departments into whatever it is you're doing. And, that, and that's a great, that's great business. I don't mean to downplay that. That is clearly, you know, a strategy that more companies should employ and even the ones that do it should do a better job of it. So I'm not suggesting that corporate synergy is a bad thing. But one of the challenges that we had internally speaking to how WCW was perceived within the company is it was easier for me to go and do deals outside of there were people outside of big big companies, big big brands, big labels, Warner Brothers being one of them. Uh, that wanted to do business with that. It was easier for me to do business with people outside of Turner Broadcasting than it was to do business with people inside of Turner Broadcasting because nobody wanted to be associated with wrestling. And this goes back to even when we were hot. It just, it's hard to explain. But Chad Brock was an example of a record label. I'm not even sure, 100% sure. I have to go back and look if he was a Warner Brothers record label or not. But he was an up-and-coming country artist. His label came. I didn't know who Chad Brock was. He certainly wasn't, quote-unquote, a celebrity. He he had just gotten a, a record deal, I believe, with his record label. His record label reached out to me and said, hey, we've got a young talent. We're going to be putting a lot of money into him. We're going to be re, you know, re- releasing some records. He was a country music artist, and he loves wrestling, and he wants to learn how to wrestle. So we brought him into the power plant. And we, we tried to develop that character. Now, if that's you know because of my fascination with celebrities, right. according to Mr. Keller, Oh, by the way, I think I paid him $75,000 a year or less. 
Um, I have to go back and look, but he came in to train. He didn't get any special favors. We didn't give him any kind of a special push. He didn't get a limo to the building. You know, he didn't fly, you know, a private jet, none of that kind of stuff. Uh, he wasn't making big money with us, whatever it was. It wasn't big money. He was just a young guy that his, like I said, his label came to us and said, Hey, we want to, you know, use his relationship with wrestling to help launch his, his country music career. Can you work with us and try to develop that? And that's what we did. It was not a fascination with celebrity as Wade Keller put. I just want to make that clear. And, and in fairness to Chad, he doesn't deserve that. By the way, you were correct. Warner brothers was the record label. <laughs> Every once in a while, I remember something from 20 years ago. I'm su- yeah. I surprised myself. <laughs> the, um, the interesting thing that was printed in the torch. Well, here we go. I'll just read this directly. Schiller didn't keep as close of an eye on WCW the last two years. After all, Bischoff had earned his trust by leading WCW to its first profitable years in its existence. But in recent months, Schiller began to seek an answer for why WCW began losing money. He sent accountants to investigate the finances and interviewed top wrestlers and executives for explanations. A couple of weeks ago, Bischoff presented Schiller with a list of proposals he contended would lead WCW into the next boom period. What do you remember about this list? Is that, is this an accurate report? And did you present such a report? Read that to me again, if you would, please. He's talking about Schiller. Of course he says he sent accountants to investigate the finances and interview top wrestlers and executives for explanations. A couple of weeks ago, Bischoff presented Schiller with a list of proposals he contended would lead WCW into the next boom period. There's some really, uh, there's some disconnect in that, you know, first of all, Harvey Schiller never paid any attention to WCW from the time he stepped in and took over for Bill Shaw. There were initially, and I'm not saying that as a criticism to Harvey. I loved working for Harvey, by the way. I had no problems with Harvey Schiller at all. Uh, he was a very straightforward, you know, cut to the chase military guy. And I prefer working in an environment like that where you don't have to read between the lines and, and, and messages are ambiguous and things like that. And Harvey was the exact opposite of that. You knew what your marshalling orders were and you're, you were charged with executing them. And I like that at the same time, um, Harvey spent very little time, uh, with WCW. He probably spent more time on the legal side of WCW, uh, with Nick Lambros and Diana Myers, uh, on an ongoing basis. Cause that was, you know, that was a very complex ongoing kind of, um, business uh, unit within WCW. But, as far as my interactions with him, they were they were very much at the macro level, you know, 33,000 feet on cruise control. I'd meet with Harvey maybe once every two or three weeks, and that was that way from the very beginning. So to suggest, as Wade did, uh, that in recent weeks, you know, he's all of a sudden started paying attention. Um, yeah, if he started paying attention, it was probably because of the finances, but to suggest that you know, he, he was kind of a hands-on manager at all was not, not a really fair, uh, representation. We should mention that the last time nitro won the night in the ratings war was October 26, 1998. Um, raw won every single week in 1999. I do want to mention the, uh, the follow-up meeting. I don't think enough people have talked about, you know, we've, we've talked about on this show. Oh, Eric goes home and that happened on the 10th, but six days later, allegedly Thursday, the 16th, 
you have a meeting with a handful of executives to sort of discuss WCW's future. And during the meeting, you receive what Wade would call a half-hearted endorsement by Schiller during the meeting. But after the meeting, there's separate discussions with Bill Bush and Schiller. And those meetings go into the late evening. And then a decision is made that you're going to move on from the WCW post and onto another Turner sports division. And no one's saying you're fired and no one's saying you've resigned just that they're going to find another spot on the bus for you. What do you remember about the meeting that happened on the 16th? What's true? What's not? This is so bizarre. This is the first time I've ever had or ever heard that I had a meeting on the 16th of September of 1999, because I was in Cody, Wyoming with my wife. This is so freaking bizarre. And this is why I know, look, I, I, I try, you know, to steal a line from the Billy Jack movie. I try. I really, really try. But when I hear this bullshit, I just go berserk. Bad representation of Tom Laughlin and Billy Jack. But this is what makes my head spin when I hear this kind of stuff. That never happened. None of it. I was in freaking Wyoming on September 16th, 1999. I never had a subsequent meeting with Harvey Schiller after I got sent home. Ever. I never had a phone conversation. No, I take that back. I think I did have one phone conversation with him while I was in Wyoming. And it was more social than it was business. It was a, hey, how are you? Everything all right? You doing okay? Sure, Harvey, I caught four brown trout in a rainbow this afternoon. How are you doing? It was that kind of, and I'm being sarcastic there. But it, it was that type of a conversation. I, would, I wasn't, <laughs> that's the funniest shit I've ever heard. On September 10th at 1130 in the morning, I, I got let go by Harvey. Harvey sent me home. And he was very un. And I don't know, you know, where you're going with the rest of the show. I won't go into the details of how he let me go and what was said and all that right here. No, we but, can do it right now if you'd like. All right, we'll do it right now. I'm in my car. I mean, I'm I had a Chevy Yukon at the time. Uh, I'm in my car, GMC Yukon, whatever it is. I'm in my truck. I'm driving to the office when I, my phone rings, my cell phone, and it's Harvey Schiller. Eric, I'm on my way to Smyrna, to my office in Smyrna, which is only 20 minutes from my house. And I get that phone call. And it's Harvey. Hey, Eric, you need to come on over to my office. We, re we talked about that at the beginning of the show. Yeah. I flip my truck in the other direction, head to Atlanta. I go into the CNN center. I go right up to Harvey's office. I sit down on a nice, big, comfortable couch in his re really well-appointed office. And, you know, I could tell when I walked in the door. I knew what it was going to be, you know, on my way there. I, I anticipated it, so I wasn't shocked. And Harvey sat me down, and he said, Eric, I, I, I just, uh, I got to let you know, you, you need to go home. And I said, Harvey, I have a pay-per-view this weekend. He said, not anymore. You don't. Those were his exact words. And I was kind of like, okay. You know, part of me was relieved, honestly, because of the state of mind I was in the night before. I was not unhappy. I wasn't angry. I wasn't sad. I wasn't, I wasn't anything other than maybe a little relieved, but mostly a little concerned because, I knew the bench strength of WCW and I knew how the hell are they going to pull a, a pay-per-view off? That was my first reaction. You know, I mean, if you're going to send, my thought was if you're, if we're going to make a move here, Harvey, let's make it after the pay-per-view. 
let's kind of keep everything together, you know, and, and if you want to let me go on Monday, let me go on Monday, but not, not the Friday before pay-per-view. And that was my only thought. And he said, no, you, 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 you need to take a break. You need some rest. Just go back, recharge. I said, you mean like now <laughs> again, still thinking, are you crazy? We've got a pay-per-view coming up. He goes, yep, just go home. We'll talk. And that was it. It was that kind of a conversation. Now it's not word for word exactly through for most of it, but there were elements of it that, that I gave you that was word for word. And I, I walked out of his office and I, I drove home and Lori was, was home. You know, our kids were still young at the time. She had just gotten them off to school and was getting ready to, to do whatever she was going to do that day. And I didn't call her on the way home and tell her I was coming home or anything. I just pulled up in the driveway, went up the stairs and she was in the kitchen and she looked at me like, what the hell are you doing here? And I sat down at our kitchen table and I told her, I said, I just got called into Harvey's office and he said, go home and take a rest, <laughs> take a break. And she, she was as confused as I was. I was still a little confused at the time. Um, and I, we talked for about, I don't know, half an hour. And I said, you know what? It's, September in Wyoming, the weather's pretty good. I had my own plane at the time. I said, I'm, I'm going to jump in the plane and fly out to Wyoming and fish for a week or two. She goes, I think that's a great idea. And that was probably around 1045 by noon. I had my, my plane gassed up and loaded and filed the flight plan and hit the autopilot. And I was on my way to Cody, Wyoming. And I didn't return for quite a while. I went up uh, after that after spending some time in Wyoming fishing, I jumped in my plane and flew up and kind of hit a couple really popular trout fishing uh, spots up through Montana. Um, stated a couple really well-known uh, locations all throughout Montana. Kind of just traveled the, the Rocky Mountains in my plane by myself for, God, I don't know, it must have been two or three weeks. So how I, how I ended up having a meeting on the 16th where I proposed a bunch of things to Turner executives, I'll never know. And and why, why Wade Keller would report that is just – it's just beyond me. I, I mean how this stuff makes it you know, to these dirt, dirt sheets and online and chat rooms is just fucking amazing. When you're on your – I'm not saying this to be funny, and I know that some people are going to think I'm saying this to be funny – but when you're on your way, maybe from the office to your house or more specifically from your house to the airport, did you call Hulk Hogan? I mean, he's, he's been sort of your go-to guy in this entire thing. And whenever you weren't sure about the landscape of something in wrestling, who better to ask than the guy who, who did it all. Did you, did you call Hulk or anybody else and say, man, you won't believe what happened to me. I mean, that just feels like a normal thing. And I'm not saying that to be weird, but is there anybody you can sort of confide in at this point? Or are you just alone in your head and I'm, I'm out of here. No, I, no, I didn't to answer your question directly. I didn't call anybody, not because I didn't want to, probably because I wasn't ready to, I was still processing things. I wasn't sure what my next move was. Keep in mind, I had two and a half years left. I just signed a, a new, a three-year deal months before this. So I had about two and a half years left on my deal. Uh, and it was a, you know, it had a pay or play provision in it, meaning they could, they could, they could send me home if they wanted to, but they still had to pay me out. So I, I wasn't, you know, worried about my next move necessarily. It just wasn't a concern for me at the time. Uh, but 
I was of the mindset of, okay, they're going to send me home. I want to resign. I want out from underneath my contract. I don't want to just sit around for two and a half years. And granted, I was making a lot of money. And, you know, the average person would probably say, well, geez, you're going to make 500 grand a year for sitting home. Why not? Plus bonuses, plus, plus, plus. Um, you know, yeah, that, that's one approach. It wasn't my approach. And I wanted out. I had no plans. You know, I, it's not like, oh, I'm going to call Vince McMahon of WWF. That would have been the last thing on my mind, um, given everything that had gone on for the previous four or five years. Uh, but I just, you know, I knew I had options. If I didn't have any, I'd create some. I wasn't worried about that. And I didn't want to be tethered. I didn't want to be tied to this albatross called WCW any longer, even if I was making a lot of money. So my head was really an, okay, what's my next move? And I didn't call Hulk. I didn't call DDP. I didn't call anybody um, that I can recall. I may have, you know, a day or two later, but that on that ride home was I'm, when I, as I'm gassing up my plane, the only thing I'm thinking about is getting to Wyoming and I was checking the weather and trying to figure out where I was going to go fishing. That's all I was thinking about. I had to let the, there was so much pressure on me at that time. And, and, and I put a lot of it on myself. I'm a competitive person. I don't like to fail. I don't like to not be able to achieve something. And although there was a lot of pressure put on me by, Turner Broadcasting, I, I put a lot of, I put even more on myself. And once I had that conversation with Harvey, I just, I, I kind of like, there's a little valve in the back of my head that I could let all the steam out, right. all the pressure out. I just opened that valve up and all I could think about was getting to that plane and getting up to cruising altitude and hitting autopilot and listening to some classical music all the way to Cody. Well, there's the old cliche that the Bruce says sometimes on the show, you know, telephone, telegram, tell a wrestler. When, when does your phone start ringing with guys like, Hey man, what's going on? I'm hearing lots of weird things. It had, you know, that's the thing. I mean, I literally, I, I can't overemphasize from, from the time I left Harvey, Harvey's office to the time I got into my plane was probably no more than an hour and a half. No, like 90 I, minutes. I mean, even when you're in Wyoming, you know, you're in the middle of, I did, I didn't take any calls. I didn't, it was, it was probably, and again, keep in mind, it wasn't like I was trying to sequester myself and I was, didn't want to talk to anybody because I was all emotional. It was none of that. I was in the best mood I'd been in probably five years. I was having a blast. I was having so much fun that I called Lori because our kids were still young at the time. I said, Lori, Lori's mom, uh, who's since passed away, but her mom lived in Phoenix, Arizona at the time we were living in Atlanta. I said, Lori, call your mom fly her out to Atlanta so she can stay with the kids. And then as soon as she gets there, jump on a plane and meet me in Wyoming. Cause this is just way too much fun. The, the fish are hitting the weather's perfect. It's absolutely beautiful. It's the fall in the Rocky mountains. It's absolutely gorgeous. And I was going to take her around with me, you know, in my plane for a few days. So, um, I was having a blast, but keep in mind, I'm in Cody, Wyoming, even today with all the advancement in technology and 4g and all that there's, <laughs> large, large areas of Wyoming where you can't get a phone call. And on top of that, I was spending a lot of time on my plane where I couldn't get cell service. So, um, I, I didn't reach out to anybody. If anybody tried to reach out to me, they would have a hard, they would have had a hard time finding me, uh, e even in an emergency. So no, I didn't talk to anybody. It might've been, I don't know, five, six, seven days before I started talking to people just because I was out doing shit. Let's talk about where the business has gone in just 12 months. You know, we've, we've often talked about on this show about how fast and how explosive the growth was during the nitro era. Certainly 95 was bigger than 94 96 was certainly bigger than 95, but the just 
crazy growth from 96 to 97. And then again, somehow from 97 to 98, well, it's a different story as we go from 98 to 99, your average attendance in September of 98, 8,086 fans at every live event. One year later, September of 99, we're down 61% to 3,155 fans. The gate is also down 51%. We're averaging 169K in September of 98. We're down to just 83 grand in September of 99. We were selling about a third of our house shows in September of 98. We're not selling out any house shows in 99. And then September 98, our average rating is a 4.48. Those two are down 24.6% in September of 99 were a 3.38, you know, from the outside, it does feel like the writing is sort of on the wall and historically in wrestling, there is, you know, uh, you hear old timers say that, and I know you're not a, a quote unquote booker, but they would say, oh, any good bookers only got X number of months or X number of weeks, or there is an expiration date in wrestling where burnout is real. Do you think that that applied to you two here, or is that more of a rule of thumb creatively and not necessarily from a management standpoint? No, I don't think it's a creative issue. Look, the, you know, for the old time, the old timers who subscribe to the theory that, you know, a booker, quote unquote, a booker or a head writer, whatever you want to call it, one in the same, um, only has so much time on the clock before burnout. Uh, maybe back in the day. I don't know. I never did it back in the day, so I don't know for sure. But I do know that in today's environment, not even today, in in the environment that I was in throughout the 90s and going into you know this period when we're producing five hours of primetime cable television every week in addition to – three or four hours of syndicated programming every week in addition to, you know, WCW Saturday night. I mean, there was a lot of stuff that we were producing and you produce it a different way. You write it a different way, you know, with 12 pay-per-views a year and all the other aforementioned television that you have to service the, 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 the writing or the creative initiative or booking initiative, if you will, is completely different in the nineties than it was back in the sixties and the seventies and even the eighties. Um, so I don't think you can draw a valid comparison there, but as it goes to the burnout factor, I, I, I was crispy as toast brother. I mean, again, and, and this sounds like, woe is me. And I fucking hate that. I hate making excuses. I hate sounding like, you know, I'm blaming things on other situations or other people, but the pressure that was on all of us and not just WCW. Again, if you go back and you read, you know, the the book when fools rush in by Nina Monk, one of the best books ever written about the AOL time Warner Turner merger ever written, uh, go back and read that book and, and you'll get an understanding for how dysfunctional Turner broadcasting was during this merger period. And the pressure that it put on all of the different operating units, not just WCW. Many of them failed. WCW, or excuse me, CNN has never rebounded. It's still in the tank. It started going into the tank and hasn't rebounded yet. And and, and there were others. But, yeah, 
tons of pressure, but I don't think it was the creative pressure. I think the cre- the the pressure that we were under and the way the company was being pulled in different directions, and as I said earlier, with the vultures picking it apart, anywhere that they could find any meat on the bone, they would swoop in and try to take it. Um, that pressure absolutely affected creative, no doubt about it. It wasn't the creative pressure that led to the business collapse, if you will. It was exactly the opposite. It was the business pressure that ultimately affected creative, if that makes sense. Let's talk about um, Vicki Miller. You wrote in your book that, uh, quote, my finance guy, Bill Bush, told me I had to go over and see Vicki Miller, who headed Turner's financial division. Quote, work with her, he said implying she could help me find a solution. I flat out refused to me. Vicki Miller represented the people who never wanted WCW on the books to begin with. That may not have been reality, but it was certainly my perception. The people at Vicky's level didn't even try to understand wrestling. To me, it was a waste of time to even have a conversation. Bill ended up getting me on the phone with her and I ended up explaining to Vicky why I wanted to do the pay-per-view and why it was a solution to our revenue problems. Her answer was quote, well, we need to find another way End quote. Well, great. I needed to figure out how to grow wings and fly myself to work every day, but that wasn't going to happen either. They cut the promotional budget, cut the guts out of my staff and cut the guts out of everything we were doing and on and on. Now you also would write in your book that you felt like this was probably strategy from Bill Bush that if he could get you in front of Vicki Miller, maybe that would help ease you out the door. What, what, what can you tell us about this Vicki Miller situation, how it relates to Bill Bush and just how it left you feeling at the time? Well, I mean, Vicki Miller was, uh, I'm not sure if she was part of the Turner executive committee or not, but she was certainly at that level. She was the head of Turner finance. Uh, she had, uh, a relationship with Bill Bush. I'm, I'm not going to suggest that it was a close relationship business-wise. They didn't interface, you know, on a daily basis. But he was, in fact, a, a report to her. Keep in mind that Bill Bush didn't report to me. You know, finance was a separate. It was a dotted line relationship to me in WCW. A dotted line meaning, if you looked at a corporate flowchart, a dotted line means that I, they worked together and uh, we we uh, we had that. Uh, in-house relationship, but his actual report to status was up to Vicki Miller. The two areas within WCW that I hadn't did not have control over were legal and finance. Those were kept separate and for good reason, by the way. Uh, so the finance side of things was totally out of my direct control. And, and Bill did have a reporting I don't know if he reported directly to Vicki Miller or a, a guy by the name of Harry Anderson who might have been one step below Vicki Miller. But either way, uh, Bill reported up to Vicki Miller and as such had more relationship with her than I did. I don't I you know, I I don't think Bill's in retrospect, I don't think Bill was hoping to get me in front of Vicki Miller, knowing that I would probably hasten my own departure. By doing so, I don't think that was his motivation, you know, at this point in my life. Um, but Vicki Miller was also, in my mind, the source 
of a lot of the budget cutting. You know, there was no there was no conversation with me from Vicky Miller or anybody. Uh, hey, Eric, if we cut your production budget by two hundred thousand dollars, I know we approved it. I know it's been allocated to you already, and I know you've got all these increased production <laughs> obligations that have been forced upon you. But we need to gut. Well, to, we need to reduce your production budget, you know, by two hundred thousand or two hundred fifty thousand. Would that have any kind of an adverse impact on your business? Those conversations didn't happen. I got a freaking memo. Be advised. We've reduced your production budget by $250,000. Well, great. How, how the hell? I'm already operating on, on fumes. Now how am I supposed to you know, deliver this product? Well, you go figure that out. That was the kind of leadership. I guess, or communication at the very least that I was getting from Vicki Miller. So for me to go and plead, and I tried to plead my case to her and the response was, well, then go figure it out. I don't want to do that. Just go figure it out. Well, you know, as I said in the book, well, great. I'll, I'll, I'll work on going and winning a lottery and see if that works. You know I mean? It's just, it was very frustrating. So there was no desire on my part to sit and try to have a rational business conversation with someone who clearly didn't want WCW to survive. And I still think to this day, and I can never prove it, it's my it's my opinion. And I think it's probably shared by a lot of people. But if you if you really step back and you study WCW and the politics associated with WCW within Turner Broadcasting from the day it was acquired to the day it was sold off. All right. There was one guy who wanted it in the company. Not two, not three, just one. And that guy was Ted Turner. During the course of the the acquisition slash merger, whatever the hell it ultimately became, Ted Turner all of a sudden woke up one day in a corner office realizing he had no influence. And that's that's from Ted Turner himself. I've heard that in interviews. I've read it in, in magazine articles where he was quoted as saying as such, that he didn't realize that he was being shown the door in the course of the merger acquisitions between Time Warner and AOL. Well, everybody around him did. Those those people, the Steve Cases, Gerald Levins, Steve Hires, you know, the, the players, they all knew it. They were the ones that were creating the architecture to let it happen or to make sure it happened. And once Ted Turner was neutralized and his influence was neutralized. And, and I'm sure Ted Turner had other things on his mind than WCW. That was probably a part of it. But once Ted was neutralized, those very same people who from 1988 or 89, when Turner acquired whatever it was, acquired uh, what was left of the NWA and renamed it WCW to the day it was sold off to, to WWE, um, those same people were chomping at the bit to unwind WCW because they had taken a run at WCW every six months or at least once a year from the day it started to the day it left. There was constantly people trying to get to convince Ted Turner, Scott Sassa among them, Brad Siegel among them, Vicki Miller among them, probably Terry McGurk at a, t- a time or two, who was really Ted's right-hand man at the time. There were a number of people who were trying to convince Ted to unplug WCW from the very beginning. 
They didn't want it. Now that, and the only reason it stuck around, the only reason I it, WCW was still around for me to take over is because Ted was steadfast about WCW and its value to Turner Broadcasting. He didn't care if it lost money. He believed in the programming. If you go back and learn anything about Ted and his strategy and how he built, you know, Turner Broadcasting, it wasn't always about, you know, the return on investment over a short period of time. He believed in owning content and owning distribution. By the way, that's a model that's working for a lot of people right now. But Ted believed in it firmly. He believed that while wrestling may not generate the revenue, it probably should in its time slot, for example, on WCW Saturday night, because advertisers just didn't really like wrestling, didn't want to be associated with it. He knew that it brought eyeballs and he knew that he could promote other, other shows with to those eyeballs that wrestling brought. So Ted was the guy. And once the executives around Ted in his sphere of influence realized that Ted no longer had either the ability to focus on WCW uh, or that he was becoming neutralized. They came in and, and starting in 98, this didn't happen over the course of two or three months. Like, you know, dirt sheet writers would like to presume because, Oh, the Eric Bischoff lost $8 billion in the last two months. Now all of a sudden WCW or turn broadcasting management is coming in and, you know, demanding answers. No brother, this stuff was happening. This was a setup that started happening in probably July or August of 1998. That's when I saw the handwriting on the wall. That's when it began. And it just became increasingly more challenging as time went on. And they became increasingly more aggressive in, in terms of picking our bones throughout, you know, 99 and, and definitely into the first quarter and the second quarter of 99, it became almost unbearable. So I, I'm not saying that this was like a plan, like a bunch of executives got together in a war room. We decided, okay, this is how we're going to finally get WCW off the books. But I will tell you that I believe a lot of WCW's problems were caused in no small part by the opportunistic nature of the people that wanted it to go away anyway. They couldn't wait for it to fail. They it, WCW couldn't fail fast enough for them. They were probably pissed in 1997 and 1998 that it was doing as well as it was. I promise you some of them were. They hated it. They wanted that real estate. They couldn't stand the fact that WCW Monday Nitro on, on TNT was one of the highest rated programs in the history of the TNT network. They fucking hated it. Why did they hate it? Because those two hours of television on primetime on a Monday night, that's where they could bring movies. Those were the projects that the people that were programming TNT, they wanted They wanted TV movies in those spots. They wanted to attract better talent. Actors, actresses, directors, producers. They wanted that real estate to grow their entertainment brand. They didn't want to give up two hours for wrestling, regardless of how successful it was. It didn't serve their purpose. So those were the people that were, when I say they couldn't wait for WCW to fail, I guarantee you I'm right about this. We should mention that uh, you theorized that perhaps... Well, I'll just read it here on his way out. Bischoff theorized the veteran financial executive, Vicki Miller acting upon guidance from bill Bush influenced Schiller towards pulling the trigger. His belief, no doubt strengthened when three days later, Schiller appointed Bush as WCW's new executive vice president quote. I thought bill was counseling Bischoff wrote years later, but what he was really doing allegedly was going to his boss and using that information to position himself. And you would also write. As much as I was disappointed with Harvey for not standing up for WCW earlier, I still trusted him. And due to this day, 
he's an honest person, sometimes painfully so. And there may be a lot of political DNA in Harvey, but I don't think there's a dishonest bone in his body. When he said, look, Eric, just go home. I took it at face value. The nitro book though, which we've talked about a lot here on the show, got some FaceTime with David Crockett. And most wrestling fans remember that name, but here in WCW, he's the VP of production. And when he was asked, Hey, do you think a, a effectively a coup went down here to get Eric out? He replied, yes, yes, yes. Harvey Schiller. He didn't know anything. He was standing on the podium instead of Bill Shaw and Bill Shaw said everything in motion. It's just like somebody setting up a world champion football team. And the next year, a new coach wins the super bowl. He really didn't do squat. Um, it's a shame that this all came to such a ugly mess. Is there a lesson to be learned? I mean, if you could go back and, and is there, is there one thing you could change? I mean, you know, if you could go back and change just one thing. Does it affect anything or is there just too, too many moving parts here in late 98? There's nothing that I, nothing, there's no one thing that would have ultimately changed the outcome for all of the reasons that I just went through in my most recent rant. I mean, there was too many people with too much influence and too much power within Turner Broadcasting that wanted WCW to go away from the minute it became WCW. And there was nothing I could do to overcome that. Once Ted Turner was neutralized and out of the picture, it, it just wasn't possible. They literally, and it's so hard, I guess it's, it's so hard to explain in a way that people who are not in the entertainment business would understand. People who are in the entertainment business get it. You know, it's a, it's a two-minute explanation. But, you know, when, you, when you've got a network like TNT that fancied themselves as kind of the, you know, the, the, the drama network, you know, a, a very, you know, compared to all of the other cable outlets, they wanted to be the gold standard of drama. And they wanted to attract the best producer, directors, writers, as I said earlier, the best opportunities in that, in that world of drama, because that's how they wanted to brand their network. To have wrestling smack dab in the middle of a Monday night is just antithetical to everything that they were trying to achieve. And there was nothing I could do to change that. Nothing. So as, as long as that sphere of influence at the very top was doing whatever they could to undermine WCW or at the very least not support it. And again, I want to, I want to make this clear. This is my opinion. You know, I don't have hard cold evidence of this. This is my opinion. And, and having had an opportunity to, to talk to certain people, uh, and, and to read Guy Evans book, I'm even more convinced I'm right at this point. Uh, but you know, is there things I could have done differently? Sure. I could have been a, a better corporate citizen. I could have learned earlier on, you know, to, to be a little bit more elegant in the way I approached certain situations with certain people. Um, I could have probably engaged more outside help, uh, that might have at least bought us some more time. Um, I think one of the things I would have done, and this is probably one of the things I I've learned from, uh, and again, I don't think it would have made any difference, but you know, there were certain people though, Sharon Sadello being one of them that was never a supporter of mine. And not that I took that personally. In fact, I kept her around knowing that she probably hated my guts and she really wanted the job that I ultimately got. Uh, and she was not a team player, 
but she was reasonably good at her job. And one of the mistakes I, I think that I made in, in, in you know, retrospect was when you take over a company um, and you're coming in and you've got you know a group of executives around you who are loyal to the previous regime or worse yet are hoping that you fail so they get a shot at your job, those people need to go no matter how good they are at their job, if they're not team players, if they're not going to support the mission, if they're not going to support the guy who's or, or the woman who's leading the, the company, the new person in charge, then they've got to go. And I knew that. Let me say, let me take that back. I knew that I didn't have her support. I knew she was one of those political animals that were just waiting in the wings for a change to happen. Because keep in mind, that was pretty much a common occurrence in WCW about every year, a year and a half, they would bring somebody else in to try to fix it. And when that person got, was gone, then, you know, maybe there was a chance someone like Sharon Sadella would be able to move up the food chain or Bill Bush or whomever. Um, that was the political nature of, of WCW at the time. And I think one of the things I probably could have done and should have done was clean house. The minute I took over and put my own people in place, as opposed to, you know, letting people who had baggage and, and another agenda uh, continue to survive and exist in the hallways because it's just a matter of time before those people, rather than supporting you when you need them the most, look at it as an opportunity to undermine you to hopefully advance their own agenda. And I, I hate to say that because it's so – it is so political. It is so uh, – I don't know. It's just it's, – it's such a negative environment to have to reflect back on. But it's true. That kind of culture exists in some companies, and it's unfortunate. Dick Cheatham would say, the tragedy is that Schiller had a lot of talent that went to waste. He didn't provide the kind of oversight that Bill Shaw provided that kept Eric Bischoff on track. Bischoff is not a corporate creature and he needed somebody that was on the 14th floor to provide that kind of support and guidance. I think the real problem was when Shaw was replaced by Schiller, Harvey didn't really care about wrestling. He didn't care about it at all. In fact, he was there for something else altogether completely. We should mention that while you're fishing, you get a phone call that, uh, goes something like, Hey, have you heard the rumors about Harvey? And you say, no, I don't even have a TV. I've just been fishing. And you're told, uh, Schiller's out. He's going to the Yankees. Does that, when you, when you hear that while you're fishing, does that shock you a little bit? Not really, but what's interesting is, <laughs> and I do remember the phone call because it came from a friend of mine by the name of, um, uh, Jamie, uh, oh, what was it? Was it? Waldron. Jamie Waldron, Jamie Waldron, uh, I haven't seen Jamie in about 15 years, but at, for a period of time, Jamie and I were pretty close and he was working at CAA and he and I had been talking while I was in Wyoming after a couple of days, I was talking to Jamie. Um, we were talking about options and where I might go if I could find a way out of my contract. So that's why Jamie called me. I was at the Chico hot springs resort just outside of God. So I was somewhere in Montana, the Chico hot Springs resort, somewhere near Bozeman, I think. And he hit me on my pager because my cell phone didn't work. And I went into the resort and got him on the um, payphone, And that's when he gave me the news. And I, I really wasn't surprised. Uh, Jamie was absolutely, absolutely convinced that Harvey's stopover in Turner was nothing more than that. A stopover to get him to a higher position. Uh, in a bigger organization. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't believe it, 
to this, you know, if, if I had to make a judgment on that to this day, I would, I, I, I would suggest that that wasn't the truth, but that was the conversation. I do want to mention that, um, I don't know why I'm so fascinated with this, but Schiller was interviewed for the nitro book. And he says, when I was leaving, there was some falling out. And to this day, I don't understand what did or didn't happen. Why he left the company. I don't know. David Crockett would respond to that in the book. And he's incredulous to this. He laughs and says it had to have his approval. It was a super big deal. It took place when I was out of the country and I got a call about it. And I went, what? I couldn't believe it. This was all Gary Juster, Sharon Sadello, and Bill Bush. Think about the people I named. Who in that group has any broadcasting or entertainment background? There again, it's just about control. And unfortunately for Eric, I wasn't there to guard his back. We haven't talked about Crockett. And I know that a lot of people would probably assume based on, you know, the nature of you know his family really running the promotion and then selling out to Turner, that he may not have always been an Eric Bischoff ally. How would you categorize your relationship with, with David at this point? I, I would, nothing is further from the truth. David was, he, he was the exact opposite of a Sharon Sadello or a Gary Jester, who clearly were just political animals that were more interested in, in, in furthering their own agendas than, than the companies even, uh, and certainly not mine. Um, David was loyal. David, from the get-go. From from day one, he was loyal, and I I mean truly loyal, not just to my face and not just saying the right things, but doing the work, and 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 manifesting his loyalty in ways that, you know, mattered in a big way. Uh, I couldn't couldn't say enough great things. There was never a moment, no matter how ridiculous some of my ideas were or out of the box they were. Uh, at that time, whether it was, you know, again, the two hour nitro wasn't my idea. It was Ted Turner's idea. But when I, you know, took the mantle and, and decided to drive forward with it, you know, David Crockett was probably right there with me, you know, w- with the best attitude of anybody in the company on how to try to make it work. Um, he was supportive in almost everything, you know, and it doesn't mean he didn't, you know, pull me aside and, and challenge me. He did but in a positive, constructive way. So I would, I would argue strongly with anybody that would suggest that David wasn't loyal. I, uh, a couple of people were quoted in the nitro book, really, really strong in your favor, Kevin Sullivan, Kevin Nash, Scott Hudson, but there's some other people, maybe some producer types like uh, Joel Edwards, who says that he really always saw you as more of an entertainment figurehead, more like the position you played on screen. People like Craig Leathers and the other directors were really putting in the work on the television side and some other people like an account executive named Greg Scordato said it was hard to separate him as an executive and the persona he played on TV. Sometimes I would get Eric Bischoff, the on-air talent guy, and sometimes I would get Eric Bischoff with his hair down. Is that more about, uh, them sort of, um, not understanding the television persona or is it more a testament to, man, you got to be up and down and all over in this business and you got to wear so many hats that at different times, your personality seems different, but you're not necessarily playing a character. You're just sort of stressed the fuck out. Well, let me start off by saying, I don't know who Greg Sorgata is. I'm not sure I've ever really dealt with him. And if I did, it was in passing. Right. So whatever his opinion was of me, I, it was 
certainly not because he knew me very well or worked with me. Joel Edwards is a name I recognize, but I couldn't pick him out of a lineup to save my life. Again, not somebody that I worked with directly. So their insight into me was probably from a distance and therefore probably not, not too valuable. Um, now that being said, look, this is, this is the weird thing about the sports entertainment business in general, not just as it relates to me, but with a lot of people is, you know, if I was, if I was an actor in game of Thrones, right. Oh, that's, that's a bad example because that's set in a different time in a different place. Let's say I was a, 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 an actor in, in we'll just name a series in a series where I played, you know, the, the meanest, ugliest, most dastardly, you know, antagonists in the world. And it was a very successful series. I would still be able to go out for dinner with sure. my wife and my kids and people would look at me and go, Hey, there's that actor that plays that character. You know, that's natural, right? You, you can be evil as hell in a movie, you, you know, in <laughs> Joaquin Phoenix, from the what I've seen on the trailers for the Joker, which I can't wait to see, by the way, um, Joaquin Phoenix can play the Joker and be this twisted, demented character that is represented so far in these trailers. And he'll be able to go out and people will know there's a difference between Joaquin Phoenix and the Joker. Right. But in in this industry, in sports entertainment in general, now it's you know made more confusing by the fact that you know my name is Eric Bischoff. I'm the president of WCW, and oh by the way, my character's name is Eric Bischoff, who plays the president of WCW. So we kind of muddy our own. Or I'm talking in the present tense, but I kind of muddied the water uh, myself by doing so. But it was natural. It was a natural evolution of my character and my position, you know, in the show. But it only further confuses not only the audience who's watching at home, but even to a certain extent, the people you work with. Keep in mind that my character on television, you know, I, 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 didn't, I didn't really change much other than the way I dressed. And even that I didn't change too much. You know, when I came to the office, typically I didn't come to the office in a suit and tie. Um, not that I wore a leather jacket and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But for the most part, you know, we worked in a pretty casual environment. So they didn't see, especially guys like you just mentioned, Joel and Greg, whatever his name was, you know, they didn't see, they didn't see me operate. They weren't in my office. They weren't on calls with me. They weren't in meetings with me. They weren't, you know, they, they, they didn't see the business side of Eric Bischoff. Now they may see the guy walking down the hall or see the guy on a television, you know, production or on location. They might see that guy operating as the president of the company who kind of looks like the character and in some respects kind of acts like the character with the dial turned down a little bit. But oftentimes they would have a hard time distinguishing one or the other. And I know I've told this Randy Anderson story before, but I'm going to tell it again. I'll tell you in short form for people that haven't heard it before. But a perfect example of that was the night that I fired Randy Anderson in front of his two kids and his wife. And I got a phone call from Harvey Schiller the next day, next day saying, what the hell did you do? I said, what do you mean? What the hell did I do? He goes, who did you fire last night? I said, Harvey, I didn't fire anybody. Who said I fired somebody? He said, Call HR. Tell them you didn't fire somebody because they've been getting phone calls all morning long from the church that Randy Anderson and his family goes to because they saw you fire him on television last night. Repeat that. Yeah. They saw you. <laughs> yeah. So 
people, it, it's weird. You know, if they saw something else on television, you know, guy shoots somebody in the head, you know, in a, in a drama series, in a crime series, they don't rush and call the cops because somebody was just murdered on television. But damn, I fired a referee. <laughs> In front of his wife and kids, and they think it really happened. So those blurry lines, and this, you know, I'm giving you my examples. I'm sure there are a lot of other talent, and I've heard some some of these similar stories as recently as two days ago, uh, with very high profile talent. It's it's just a blurry line. So I understand why Greg or Joel, whoever they are, may have said what they said, but they didn't really get a close look at the other side of me. The business side. They only saw the character side. One thing that Harvey Schiller is quoted as saying is there was a point when McMahon wanted to talk about combining the two wrestling groups. I met with him and they thought about making it into a mega type entertainment business. We had the meeting, but it would have meant giving up control. And at that point, I didn't think either side wanted to give up control. And it was when WCW was doing well later on in my tenure, it was sort of a casual meeting, but it wasn't something that was going to fit. And I think both parties knew that. Do you think that part of the strategy may have been if Bischoff's out of place, maybe we could start to have a conversation with Vince about taking this thing off our hands and just getting this thing out of Turner? No, no, I don't look, I I wasn't an obstacle. You know, if they ultimately, and I, I wasn't a part of those conversations. I was aware, by the way, Harvey told me that it happened, that the meeting happened, but I wasn't a part of it. I, I only found about it afterwards, not prior to. Uh, and like I said, I wasn't a part of those meetings. But had had the desire been to find a way to do a deal, it would have been a piece of furniture that could have either moved me over uh, to the new entity or kicked me to the curb. So they didn't require a strategy with regard to me and my position in order to affect some kind of a deal with WWF. If indeed that was something that they wanted to try to do. I didn't have any, I didn't get to vote. You know what I mean? I, I, I wouldn't have had a vote in the equation. I guess we should mention that, uh, although we're talking with some great finality here, like this is it, you're going to come back in April of 2000. That had to shock the shit out of you, considering the way this comes to an end here. Did it not? No, it didn't. I predicted it. I predicted it. Oh, we talked about that when you were at the Chili's, but I mean, yep. r- right away though, let's fast forward a month later. You had to think wrestling's in my rear view, right? I mean, come yeah. what Christmas 99, you gotta be thinking, well, what's next, right? Oh yeah. I mean, I was thinking that, you know, five minutes after I walked out of Harvey's office on September 10th, I thought about it when I was in my airplane as I was flying out to Wyoming, listening to classical music, I'm, you know, autopilot. Uh, yeah, I, I, I was planning chapter two or the next chapter. I should say I was well into the book by then, but I was planning the next chapter of my life and thinking about what's next. Uh, but what, you know, I found out subsequently they weren't going to let me out of my deal. They made that very clear when I asked to, I asked to get out and Harvey said, don't even, don't even try going there. It's not going to happen. So they, you know, to your question before, do you think that this was a move to try to get me out of the way? They could have easily said, sure, Eric, we'll let you out of your deal. We'll have saved them a half a million dollars a year and a bunch of other stuff. And I mean, so yeah, I don't think there was any uh, effort on anybody's part to do anything uh, quite so creative as moving me out so they could move into another deal. But uh, yes, to answer your question, I was looking at wrestling in my rearview mirror. I was planning my next chapter. I had no desire to go back. 
at all. I didn't miss it. I didn't hope that my phone would ring. I was hoping it wouldn't. As a matter of fact, I expected that it would because it was a just. It was a disaster. I knew Bill Bush would crash and burn in a very short period of time. I had one conversation with him um, after it all went down a couple months later, September, October, might have been around October, November. You know, I I hadn't really realized the kind of the coup, as David Crockett described it. I, I didn't really recognize it for what it probably was at the at, around October, November. I was just kind of looking at it at face value. And, you know, I called Bill to see how he was doing and let him know that if he needed anything, if he needed any advice off the record, you know, wanted him to know that he could call, you know, it could be off the record if he wanted to run anything by me or just talk. Uh, that was the last time I, I talked to Bill. But other than that, I, I didn't want to talk to anybody about wrestling and I didn't, I didn't. And until I got the call from Brad Siegel. I want to run through some things real fast, sort of rapid fire. And I want you to just tell me, yes, it was a factor. No, it wasn't because among, you know, and we're going to wrap things up here, but when, when this news comes down, it's the biggest news in wrestling that year that Eric Bischoff is no longer running WCW. I mean, nobody could have ever predicted that this would be the case. Just, you know, a year prior, certainly not three or four years prior when you guys are just setting all kinds of records. But when it happens, everybody's sort of got a timeline of events of things that they think were a contributing factor or not. Um, the whole Rena Marrow stuff in June of 99, think that was a factor at all with Turner legal. Mm, it didn't help, but I don't think it was a factor. It was probably one more one more bullet in the ammo box for those people that wanted to see WCW go down. Uh, but I don't think in and of itself, it was enough of an issue to become a real factor. The master P situation, good, bad, ugly, you know, the silliness backstage, maybe there were guns. Maybe he was asking more demands. Maybe he got paid too much. Was that a factor? You think zero, absolutely zero. Uh, Conan did an interview where he was, um, pretty out front saying that you've got a lot of wrestlers that wield a lot of power. And if you're not part of their clique or not drinking or training with them, you get cut out. It's just bad business that makes the press. You take him to task about it. It eventually leads to a pretty public dressing down at some point in August. And that's where you say, essentially, if you don't want to work here, get the fuck out. And one guy stands up and wants to leave. And that's Raven. Actually, I guess a few others do. But you single out Ray Mysterio in that meeting. You single out Conan in that meeting. Uh, Billy Kidman wants to leave. Uh, Ultimately, nobody winds up taking a deal to leave and go somewhere else except Raven. And you enforce a non-compete with WWF, but allow him to go to work for ECW. And he is essentially making 50 cents on the dollar to leave. That whole grandstand meeting in hindsight, did that hurt? Or if you had to do over again, would you have done it the same way? Um... I would have done it a little differently, but the message would have been the same. I would have probably done it on a one-on-one basis as opposed to in a meeting. We've talked about this recently, the macho man, Tori Wilson, gorgeous, George violence against women on TV thing that happened in July of 99, just a couple of months prior to this, maybe five or six weeks prior. Does that hurt? Does that help? Does it matter? Is it insignificant? 
insignificant. You know, you keep in mind now, if that would have happened today, it would have been an entirely different sure. situation. But we were not nearly as politically correct uh, in, in entertainment back then as, as we are now. The, the idea that the um, revenues are down and we're taking some losses, and then we've got this Sturgis pay-per-view in August, and there is no gate. And I know we've talked about this ad nauseum, but the newsletters will continue to push it. Sturgis being not the most profitable pay-per-view one month prior to you leaving hurt and different. And not only did it, was it not a factor? I will go back and say this again. And I know we touched on this and maybe I didn't do a great job explaining it. The revenue that we generated from sponsors like Valvoline, one example in no small part due to our Sturgis relationship far exceeded any gate revenue that we would have ever gotten in any pay-per-view at the peak of our careers or at the, excuse me, at the peak of our, our success. So I know that the dirt sheet universe as myopic as they are and, and as unfamiliar as they are with the business of the wrestling business, I know it's hard for them to understand. You almost have to paint the picture with crayons and stick figures um, to help them understand. But the the Sturgis pay-per-view, we canceled it in July, not because it necessarily it was unprofitable because there was no ticket sales. Um, hell, there were a lot of pay-per-views that we had that really didn't generate a lot of money in terms of ticket sales. Not not 97 and 98, mind you, but that wasn't the criteria. The criteria was to generate as much money on a pay-per-view as we possibly could to theme that pay-per-view so that it felt unique as it could possibly feel. And more importantly, more importantly than, than the previous two points, was to find a way to make ourselves more attractive to more advertisers, particularly in the gas and oil business, because the gas and oil section of the advertising community spends a lot of money, a lot of money. We wanted to go for beer. We couldn't get beer because we had too much of a, of a kid's demo in our profile. There were too many kids watching wrestling in order for us to attract a beer sponsor. And they were just scared of it. Uh, they were, they were afraid of the, 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 the backlash that, they would get – we were at Turner Broadcasting. We're also concerned with that. But gas and oil was a real big target for us, and that was one of the reasons – not the only reason, but one of the reasons that we did that pay-per-view. Now, to answer your question, again, for a dirt sheet writer who has never run a wrestling business, who really doesn't understand it, who doesn't really know anything about advertising other than what they may read in the trades or what some disaffected – you know stooge in a, in a wrestling company may feed them. Um, the Sturgis pay-per-view was successful on a number of different fronts. I'm not defending it. It was a pain in the ass. I mean, I, but after the first one, it, it, you know, maybe the second one, I, I didn't want to go. I mean, it was a pain in the ass. The first one was great. The first one was an adventure. The first one was a success. The first one achieved a lot of different things. And I, and I had a blast doing it. And so did most of the people that were on it. Um, after the second one, if you were to ask for a show of hands for how many people wanted to come back the third year, you'd have, hard, you'd have been hard-pressed to see half a, half a dozen hands in a room, including my own, by the way. But it doesn't take away from the fact that that pay-per-view and the strategy behind it was far more successful than the intellectual profile of half a dozen dirt, dirt sheet writers combined would be able to understand. We should mention that it was, uh, reported in, in late August that 
Savage is going to blow a gasket after the road wild pay-per-view. He's not happy with the politics. And of course it's Hulk Hogan related again, according to, to his issue. And you wanted Hogan to turn back heel and drop the red and yellow. And Ric Flair doesn't want to put over Shane Douglas and Chris Jericho, who's just left debuts and pops a 6.53 rating on raw compared to a 2.37 for nitro. And it just feels like the. It's just a snowball effect here towards the end. And one of the things that is discussed is, and this is sort of a weird aspect, but McMahon does an interview with Michael Landsberg on off the record about a month before you're out in WCW. And when he was asked if Eric Bischoff called for a job, if he'd take him, Vince said he didn't know what Bischoff could offer that everything he does is for the betterment of his product and the fans. And, um, I don't know. That's just a weird dynamic that even a month before you were out, the question comes up on off the record. Did you hear that? No, I didn't. This is the first I've heard of that. It's just fascinating to me that all of this stuff is, is sort of coming here at a head at the exact same time. And there's lots of other theories and rumor and innuendo and, speculation as to why this happened and the way it happened and could have had how it could have gone down differently and what the politics and finances were. But the idea that we sort of get to travel this road with you and, and, and sort of hit all the high points and talk about where your headspace was at the time is really the most valuable part of the show to me. And we took to Twitter and said, Hey, if you've got a question for Eric, uh, you know, we want to hear it. And, uh, Andy Conda had a great one here. He says, if you knew that it was going to be your last day, was there anyone you would have apologized to or told to go fuck themselves on your way out? <laughs> uh, no, in, in neither case, look, were there people there? And, and I mentioned a few of the names that I knew weren't supporters of mine. Of course I knew they were, but I like I kept them around. If if I was of the mindset where I wanted to tell them to go fuck themselves, I would have fired them, you know, months or years before. So I didn't, I, I I didn't carry around that kind of baggage. If there was somebody there that bothered me that much, I would have let them go. Um, and in terms of apologizing to, no, I mean, I look, I did the best I could with what I had to work with. I'll never apologize for that ever. Let's put a bow on it. What's your uh, biggest regret or biggest mistake you made while running WCW? And then what were you most proud of? Um, I'll start with the biggest mistake. I've said it before. I'll say it again. It'll probably be on my headstone somewhere. Um, You know, I wish I would have left in July or August of 1998 when I saw the handwriting on the wall. My instincts were right. You know, I've found in my life while I'm if I overthink something or if I don't think about it from, you know, from multiple perspectives, a challenge, a problem, whatever the case may be, uh, or even creative, um, oftentimes I'll make a wrong choice. Uh, so I try now at least to when I'm posed with a creative challenge or a business challenge or even a personal challenge, um, I try to look at solutions from multiple angles rather than latching onto one and running 100 miles an hour with it. Um, that's something that I've learned just over time. And it, 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 and it goes against my nature. You know, my nature is I'm, I'm a pretty compulsive person. And, and when I believe I'm right, I, I, I'm ready to go. 
and I've learned to be more analytical. But I, I knew my instincts were right in July of 1998. It, it, it took a year to really manifest and become obvious. Uh, but I wish I would have listened to my instincts uh, earlier in, in 98, and I wish I would have resigned. I hate to say that because I'm not a quitter. I'm just, I've never quit anything. And, and uh, it's hard for me to ever even imagine myself, you know, resigning uh, at that time. But in retrospect, I wish I would have because my life would have been different. I think the outcome for, for a lot of people would have been different. Not better, not worse. Some people better, some people worse. But uh, I wish I would have left. Talk to me about that. If you think you left when WCW was on top, you would have had more opportunities in the entertainment world, you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, my my stock value was pretty high in 98. Um, I would have been able to leverage that. And I had, you know, different people, not not with specific opportunities or specific specific job offers, but I had enough of a Rolodex uh, that, that was pretty active that if I would have picked up the phone and let my agents in L.A. know that I am available, um, I probably would have been busy within 30 days. So, I, yeah, I wish I would have – my story would have certainly been different. My personal story would have been different had I left in 98 and not gotten sucked into the abyss of – sorry, Chris Park – sucked into the abyss of what became WCW as a result of the merger. Well, the uh, proudest moment, what is it? I don't really have one proudest moment. I think if I look back, um, generally, it, it, in a moment in time, the the right before Christmas when I had uh, Harry Anderson, who is, uh, I think he was a controller, worked under Vicky Miller at, at, the, at Turner Broadcasting, and he and I made a bet, I don't know, earlier in the year that WCW would turn a profit. He was absolutely adamant that it wouldn't. And he had, we had this conversation right in front of Bill Shaw, who was my boss, but in a very, you know, lighthearted way, because Harry had a good sense of humor, despite the fact that he was in finance. Sorry, no offense to people in finance, but generally not the most fun people to be around. But he, you know, he made me a bet. I, I told Bill, you know, we were, we were talking about WCW's finances, and I, I said, Bill, I think this is the year. I think we're going to be able to turn a profit. And Harry Anderson stood up, and he said, you're out of your mind. There's no, that is not going to happen. You can't do that. I said, I'll bet you a dollar. He goes, all right, I'll bet you. No, but here's the deal, Harry. If I win, you've got to get down on one knee and hand me that dollar in front of every employee at WCW. And he took the bet, and he lived up to it. And he did it. That was a moment that I was most not proud for me, really. And I know people that think they know me are not going to believe this, and I don't really give a shit. But I was proud for the employees of WCW because I made him do it at a Christmas party in downtown Atlanta at a Mexican restaurant. He didn't get to do it in the confines of his office or or a conference room in, in Turner Broadcasting. I'm. I asked him. To, I didn't want to say I made him. He was a good sport about it, but I asked him to come down and do it in front of the WCW employees at a Christmas party because I wanted them to feel good about what they accomplished, and he did it. And so that moment probably was one of the moments I was most proud of. Overall, I think what I'm most proud of is taking the challenge. It wasn't even a challenge; it was a mandate 
from Ted Turner to create a, a show on Monday night that would compete with WWF. And I did that. And we're excited that you did. And uh, we're looking forward to next week. It's going to be a much happier topic. Fall brawl, 1996. I've got the war games here with the NWO in the main event, taking on Ric Flair, Arn Anderson, Lex Luger, and sting. And this is on the heels of sting turning his back on Lex Luger and attacking him on nitro. It's going to be a good time. We hope you'll tune in next Monday and every Monday right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.